Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We talk today to Dustin Garrow, who is a uranium market commentator. He also sits on a number of uranium junior mining boards. And we talked to him about the US Department of Energy's recommendation yesterday with regards to restoring America's competitive nuclear energy advantage. He gives us his broad view on what some of those recommendations could mean, uh, the timing of delivering and the cost of delivering them. We also talk about an area which we'd not yet considered when looking at whether to invest in a uranium junior. Enjoy the podcast. Dustin, how are you, sir? Um, fine, considering the extended lockdown here in Colorado, but we're up in Steamboat Springs, so not the worst place to be. Uh, no, it's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. You keeping yourself busy? Oh, yes. I think uh, certainly with the uh, improvement in the uranium market, there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of conference calls with investor groups that uh, are either currently invested or are looking to... Uh, to come back in the space and they've seen the the price go up some 40 percent i see this morning it was you know above 33 and so it continues to continues to improve so it, it gets a lot of attention yeah i mean it, as, as a percentage it's it's moved up significantly in the last two months for sure after a period of flatlining um but Yes. We, we spoke in September when you were in London for the WNA conference. We, we caught up there and talked about the marketplace and winners and losers and so forth. Um, but a lot has happened since then. We've had a lot yes. happen since then. We've got, um, you know, the indeterminate shutdown at uh, Cigar Lake. We've had the Kazakhstan prom closed down for a three-month period or at least, reju- you know, reduce. Um, their facilities uh, output, um, Namibia, Rossing, Husab affected, Australia uh, looks like reduction in the numbers, but may may face closure depending on how they manage things. So the market um, was is sort of driving that supply demand fundamentals story even further, even tighter. Uh, to the the cross point there, um, we also had a fairly big uh, announcement yesterday, and I do want to get your feedback on all, all of the above um, from the Department of Energy in the U.S. Um, about revitalizing the nuclear energy um, uh, complex there. So, why don't we why don't we start off with um, yesterday's yesterday's announcement first? It was short on detail, no numbers. No dates, uh, no sense of how money is going to be allocated. And I think the market was disappointed. If you look at the share price of some companies, they, they, they did drop pretty, pretty quickly after 12 o'clock. Um, was it what you expected? Well, I think, you know, having uh, been kind of peripherally involved in the, uh, the 232 process, which, by the way, ended a year last July, and so the Nuclear Fuel Working Group was an entirely new creation from the Trump administration. And I think with the 13 federal agencies involved, uh, there's always a little skepticism of how that a group that large representing such a diverse um, number of areas within the government is going to come together, which they did. But I think that there was some expectations of uh, 
you know, more specific uh, actions. I think they've laid out, obviously, there's more um, direction. But I think as, uh, you know, Mark Chalmers at Energy Fuel said, you know, this is the first comprehensive study of the U.S. fuel cycle in decades. And so that's an important first step. And the Secretary of Energy, though, made the comment that this is a roadmap. In other words, this will allow the government now, see they've proposed to have a senior uh, administration official oversee kind of the ongoing process. Um, I understand there's even a call later today where the stakeholders, which would probably be producers, processors, uh, certainly the utilities, uh, NEI, uh, will all have a chance, I think, to begin to discuss some of the details, perhaps, of how does this now get implemented. And then I think one of the bigger issues, though, Matt, is um, the length of time we're dealing with. I mean, on the uranium side, they talked about the uranium reserve uh, being put in place, and it may be something that enhances the American Assured Fuel uh, Stockpile Program, which was put in place actually back in 2012. Um, and they put some numbers, 17 to 19 million pounds uh, beginning this year. But you can assume, is it a 10-year program, which they've talked about? Uh, will it be some ramp up? Well, you know, again, it, it, those kinds of details are really lacking. And the other that's important is how do they allocate that? When they submitted their 2021 budget uh, request, it said to keep at least two U.S. uranium mines in operation. Well, you know, that that's, first of all, that's a pretty meager uh, domestic industry. You know, most of the projects are pretty small in situ recovery um, mines. So do they actually mean specific mines, companies, um, you know, what, what, it, what will be the annual volume um, the, the Secretary of Energy said yesterday they don't have a process for determining pricing, which is pretty important. I think the producers have told the government that they need really a long-term government commitment at reasonable prices, considering the production cost profile in the U.S. Um, and it's got to go on in order for it to allow them to raise capital to rehire people to, you know, again, restart their facilities. Um, I think one of the issues clearly is they've stated that it's only no commitment is made beyond the 2021 budget request. So right now it's a once off situation. So anyway, yeah, I think the, the market, the investment side was expecting, you know, more, more specifics and, they may come in time, but it, it may take a while. So, yeah, thanks um, for the answer. Um, I think the thing that was missing um, as well was an indication of how it's going to engage with the stakeholders. There's a lot of stakeholders. There's a lot of money to be deployed. There's a lot of planning and economics to be worked out. The the time frame here is or potentially could take a long time to put together before anyone's in a, in a position to make a decision about um, you know, allocating budgets. And even then, it's got to go through a congressional process of approval. 
even though this is a bipartisan proposal or a recommendation, this is going to be a long time in the making. How do uranium miners, because that's what we're here to talk about today, how do uranium miners get an, uh, an understanding or a sense of how they benefit and when? Well, again, I mean, trying to make a determination of how the government is going to approach a newly created uh, entity or activity, um, they may decide we've got to put a lot of resources. Uh, we'll have a lot of video conferencing. We'll, you know, make decisions quickly. Um, we'll just have to have to wait and see. But, uh, you know, I think normally the government is very uh, um deliberate in how they do things so it, again it may take may take a while and and again i think that one of the issues there's a lot of u.s producers when you look across those that have existing facilities those that have proposed developments that they've been working on for years i mean i don't want to necessarily identify specific companies but the list as you point out is is fairly lengthy uh just i just looked this morning at uh uh, in-situ recovery capability, if you look at all of the projects, existing, proposed, you know, it's above 20 million pounds a year, which no one, you know, the, the most anything's been produced recently is below five. So, so again, I think there'll be a lot of, of stakeholders, as you say, involved, and uh, it, it will be a interesting process. Okay, so g given the the big thing we heard there was that the U.S. government would be acquiring um, or establishing a uranium reserve, and we, you've talked about the uh, seventeen to nineteen million pounds over a ten-year period. I mean, right now, as today, as today, I can I can think of a couple of companies, and between them, they maybe could put together a million pounds today. Um, they're also going to need to see the price recover to a point where it's economic for them to get their facilities back up and, and running. And of course, I'm referring to the two petitioners here in this instance. Um, I, I know lots of people throwing their hat on the ring about how quickly they get back into production, but they all need a price to be incentivized to do that. It's nowhere near that at the moment. So it's nice to see a spot price at 33 bucks, um, but it's going to be better for these companies to understand what utilities are prepared to be prepared to um, pay in terms of term contracts, however they're structured. And we are going to talk about that later um, here. So um, I, that's the only thing I'm seeing, building of a reserve. What can it mean and what can investors interpret that as meaning for the companies that they may be invested in, U.S. companies? So what will happen on the product with the producers? And yeah, I think that, uh, you know, some are, have been preparing for the commercial market to uh, to improve to the point where they can be uh, you know participants, but I think, as you know, it's all about the timing, and how long does it take? I mean, it's like Fukushima. Uh, you know, Tim Gitzel at Cameco has said never thought nine years later we would be where we are. Finally, the market is seemingly beginning to respond. So I think that's uh, you know a big factor for the the U.S. production industry is you know they've been some have been able to benefit from long-term legacy uranium contracts which has kept their operations going those have pretty much run out or they've moved the deliveries forward in negotiations with the customers 
to benefit now rather than over the next few years. Um, there are a couple of uh, producers with contracts that are still in place, but they've really dropped off. So then the question becomes, what do you do now? Do you keep, you know, they've had to cut back. I mean, production now is a virtually zero. So you've got these several companies that have gone to bare minimums. Uh, there's, there's not really a, but again, they'd have to rehire people. And so it's, it's how long do the investors want to be involved in, you know, kind of living off of very minor raisings and when, you know, when will the market be there? Let's put it that way, be it the government or the commercial market. So I think that's kind of, you know, it's put them in a, a difficult position, even waiting until October 1st, if the $150 million is approved, you've still got another five months at least um, before there would be any funding available. So anyway, it, it's, you know, it, it's a difficult position right now. And that includes conversion. I mean, the, the Metropolis plant now has been shut down for, you know, well more than a year. I think it's approaching two years. And, you know, it'll take a while for them to get back in operation. I see they put a date of 20, 2022 on that. Um, and I understand they're still shipping yellow cake off site. It's being transferred to other converters to be, uh, to be toll converted. So they meet their delivery commitments, but uh, that's a big deal when you move yellow cake off site from a conversion plant. So, so anyway, yeah, yeah it, it's gotten down to where it's a, a difficult situation. It's a, it's a difficult situation, but I'm, I'm trying to work out where the power lies. And I'm trying to, and again, help investors understand where the market dynamics are shifting to. Because what we heard yesterday was that the significant intent from the US government by the Department of Energy, that, that's, that's what I heard, but it's going to take time, and it's going to take time before um, they know how they're going to allocate budget, and they're not committing to anything beyond 2021. So I think there are some immediate beneficiaries when the when the system you know starts working, when whatever they construct starts mm -hmm. working for sure. Um, and if they do start buying pounds this year, then again, there's a couple of beneficiaries of that. But it seems to me that the power has shifted back to the market dynamic, which is the supply demand fundamentals, which you know has been growing and has been accelerated with this COVID nineteen situation we see here. the The, the gap is huge. The, the demand supply gap is huge, like it's never been uh, before. Yes. And do you think that investors, companies, funds alike should be focused on that? knowing that the nuclear working group is nuclear field working group is working towards solving something but let's focus on what things we we know and what things we can control rather than relying on a government which is traditionally slow moving well yeah i think that uh, you know as as we are all aware now with uh, the covid-19 effects on the uranium market and as you say the the supply side is really the issue I mean, demand effects seem to be relatively modest. EDF will probably have the biggest impact. But, you know, here in the U.S., the uh, Department of Energy just put out their short-term energy outlook 
on April 7th. So they've attempted to include some COVID-19 effects on the economy. They see nuclear down less than 2% this year in total generation of electricity in the U.S. China has said their nuclear plants are, are back. You know, I don't think they ever reduced operations. Um, South Africa is keeping a unit down a little longer than they thought. But it's really the cutbacks on supply, which could be the final catalyst uh, on the commercial market side, which I think the the understanding of supply issues really came up with the WNA report in September when they came out and said in every scenario, there is a need for unspecified uranium sources. And that was a way of trying to describe inventory, in, increased production, at existing mines, whatever, to fill that gap. So I think that we've had now, you know, more than six months of the industry realizing supply certainly was an issue. Now we've had these cutbacks. You know, the, the general census uh, production would be about 140, 142 million this year. Last year was around 140. Um, if you'd start, depending on your assumptions of restarts of Cigar Lake and things like that, probably gonna lose 20, maybe 25 million pounds this year, if not more, so you're down 110, 115 with uranium requirements, if you look at WNA, of, you know, around 180. You've still got secondary supplies, 25 million seems to be a, a number people are agreeing on. So like you say, that gap has really gotten substantial. And then the restarts, I think when the Kazakhs start to put in well fields, they have to put the lexivient to them. So there's a slow ramp up. But yeah, I think that we may now be seeing the market finally being transitioned into one of deficit, of structural deficit. And so there's just got to be better contracts longer term, not just to restart the mines that are down, principally MacArthur and, and things in Kazakhstan, but for new mines. I mean, there is, a, a, I think, an acknowledged need to build new production capacity beyond what's in care and maintenance. And by pick a date, you know, is it 2023, 2025? It, it's, it looms large when it takes years to get these projects actually producing yellow cake, which is the ultimate, uh, let's say, need of the market. So I think that's what, but, but the, the movement of the spot price um, one of the points that was brought up recently is when that gets closer or exceeds term prices, then the utilities can go into their managements and say it's no longer 25 and low 30s or really closer to 40. True long-term contracts have been kind of in that range. People haven't really been signing them. Um, but now spot, you know, the, those, that relationship has always been pretty close. And that again has justified the the term contracting. So I think we may be moving into that new phase of the market. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Um, we've heard CEOs talk about submitting RFPs, but the 
the numbers that they're able to, to are, that they're submitting are not close anywhere near close to what the utilities are wanting to see at the moment. But do you feel that the the gap where we are today at 33, and where most people are saying? Well, mostly as I talk to you, to be able to run this economically, some of some will get into production at 30, um, but they're not making much money. You want to make money, right? That's the name of the game. So do you think, how quickly do you see these markets moving? You were around for the last cycle. You saw it explode. Do you think we're in the same or similar market conditions to back then, um, which will allow the price to move rapidly when it does start going? Or are we going to be stuck in the 30s for some time, in which case it doesn't, it's not going to move the dial for a lot of producers. Well, I think, you know, at this point, there's several opinions, of course. There are those uh, that say, yeah, the price will move up the spot price, maybe into the mid 30s, uh, could stall out. We could see a new trading range kind of in the, you know, 32 to 35 area for a while. Uh, then the utilities would say, well, you know, it just shows maybe there's not as big of a supply issue looming. Um, there are others saying $40 by third quarter, uh, $50 by the end of the year. I think what triggers particularly the term contracting is both the level and let's, the velocity. You know, that the price keeps moving up then the utilities reached a conclusion that, well, this is now sending me a signal that supply is an issue in the future. Um, and so I think it, we're still a little early, but I think uh, we're more likely to see some of the utilities, again, they, they started to come in the market before the COVID effect. A couple of the big US utilities uh, distributed long-term requests for proposals, uh, one in January, one in February, but they were really capturing the true long-term market. I mean, delivery starting, you know, kind of 22 to 24 and going out to 28 to 30. So they were beyond the carry trade um, impact. And, uh, you know, as, as a couple of the market observers have said, they probably saw the best prices that may be offered under new term contracts for quite a while. But then they've kind of stepped back a bit with the, the COVID effects where they've, you know, have to handle all of that. And some of it's reloads. You know, again, spring and fall are big reload uh, timeframes in the U.S. And the fuel groups get involved in that. Having worked in a fuel group in the past, you go out to the reactor, you do fuel startup tests. And so that is a high priority. And, uh, you know, they've got a pretty full agenda right now of issues they have to get cleared. But I'm hearing that some are still in discussions with the bigger producers um, about long-term contracts. And again, Matt, that's one thing that, you know, people tend not to focus on. Well, I do want to talk I about that. I went back 15, yeah, 15 years, and there's a certain way you have to go about. Well, let's get on to that. Contract. Well, let's get on to that. I think the market fundamentals are moving in the right direction right now. Okay, well, let's get on to that. So, and let's put it in a, in a way that people can understand. We go, right. So, Cameco, has got orders to fill. Cameco is not producing any of its uh, its own product at the moment. Okay, it's got orders to fill. 
it needs to find pounds in the in the market, and it's been able to cobble together pounds over the last year, um, put together with their own output, and you know they're hopefully making some money there. There's not a lot of pounds out there now, but they just they have these contracts in place. What happens if they cannot find the pounds that they need to fill the contracts? Do they just turn and go, sorry, can't do it, we'll have to wait till there's something in the market, or we have to wait till we get into production? Can you get it? What are the, what are the, what are the punitive um, uh, terms in a contract uh, if you don't deliver? Well, there are you know force majeure uh, protections. Now, can you say that I don't think MacArthur would uh, qualify, but Cigar, I mean, it was shut down due to um, provincial health restrictions. So that to me is if they had to trigger force majeure, they could do it there. Um, but back on their making their deliveries, um, keep in mind, they've got purchase agreements in place. I think they've got a couple, certainly with Inkai. And as they made clear on their quarterly, they've, they're taking a disproportionate share of that production, meaning they're taking pounds that were produced for Kazadam Prom. So I think that, you know, they've probably set up some agreements uh, with probably maybe the Kazakhs, with others, maybe the Uzbeks right now, uh, that you don't see in the, the spot market but they are near-term purchases. So that's one thing. Um, wouldn't surprise me if they've gone to their um, their customer base and some of them have said, hey, do you really need these pounds right now? What if we deliver them a year from now? That goes on so it affects the, the uh, delivery commitment side. They've not really suggested that, but that's what I'd be doing. And the other is loans. I mean, I think, uh, you know, again, Cameco is a pretty conservative company. Um, would I approach maybe utilities that are holding big inventories, which they don't intend to sell, but they don't need for maybe several years? And there's certainly one big region where that's uh, applicable and put in place contingent loans. You know, if we need to draw down this material, can we do it under this, these so I think they've probably done some things on the procurement acquisition side more than just coming into the spot market uh, to, to probably in, ensure that they're going to meet their delivery commitments. I mean, at the end of the day, it's long-term delivery reliability is what carries the day in this industry. And even the Kazakhs have said that's where they want to, they're continuing to progress but they want to be viewed as a long-term reliable supplier. Well, to do that, you meet your delivery commitments. So, so I think that's, you know, if you look at what Mike Camco be doing, I think Arano is in a somewhat similar position. People kind of don't talk about them, but um, in a normal year, uh, if a MacArthur was operating and cigar normally, they'd get about 20 million pounds out of Kazakhstan, Canada, and Niger. Now, if you, based upon some assumptions, they might lose seven or eight million this year with MacArthur, with the cigar, with the cutbacks in Kazakhstan. And I think one of the, the telling issues there is when they shut down MacArthur and they borrowed 
one year's worth of production share, 5.4 million pounds, immediately from Cameco, didn't suggest to me they had a lot of uh, available inventory. So again, there when when people say there are producers buying in the market, I assume that that's both Cameco and Arano. So so that's a sort of, that's a sort of mixture of, mixture of on market and off market acquisitions, and in, in a way, it's kind of a, a I would call it structured finance, really, because you're talking about bor- borrowing under certain conditions with a view to either replace or. Uh, Pay at whatever structured finance rates you have you have agreed. So it's it's much more complicated than uh, I think most people appreciate um, the way the way that the the product moves around the market. Yes. No. Yeah. There's no question. And again, I just want to say I'm I'm speculating a bit on Cameco, but I know them again as a long time conservative company. And, and they want to meet their delivery commitments. So that's what I'd be doing. I'd certainly be putting the loans in place. But yeah, I think you're right. I mean, even in the spot market today, you step back and you say, well, the volume is 30 million pounds through like mid to late April. And the question, of course, is where did those pounds come from? Well, I'm being told that actually some producers are selling. There's a couple that because of production cost structures um, are not as sensitive to backing out of the market. Let's put it that way. Uh, Some of the traders have been doing a bit, um, but also the financial buyers, those that kind of showed up in a wave in 2018, they bought, there was speculated 10, 12, 15 million pounds. Um, I think last year, some of them may have uh, managed those inventories a bit sold some off. But what I'm being told is they've they've been in the market um, selling and buying. They're acting more and more like traders. So we see what's called churn in the market. And that's kind of reflected in that 30 million pounds. So it's not really 30 million free pounds. It's probably less than that. But we've had pounds transacted more than once by some of these. So, so again, the market is, as you say, more complicated than it appears on the surface. But again, the, the, the financial buyers acting as traders, and it's not all of them, but it's enough to kind of get more volume in the marketplace. Okay, we're getting into an area which I, which I, which I love, which is, um, it's where you work out how you make money, okay? So we've all you've started to describe the fact that term contracts can be extremely complex uh, mechanisms. Yeah, you're, you're laughing because you know it. <laughs> um, you know, and they, they, they can be designed and cut in a number of different ways. So park that, bear that in mind. It's a complex thing. I've been trying to help people understand um, how to pay, how to identify the types of companies, junior uranium uh, miners, who have more of a chance of getting into production than others. So we, we've looked at the fundamentals of the the asset and the management team's experience, their access to or availability of cash to move this through, and the stage of development that they're at, and they and clearly the economics of what they've what they've got. Um, but the bit we very rarely talked about is that 
thing we talked about at the start, which was the complexity of putting deals together. Because even if you can economically get into production, you've then got to deal with and contend with putting these contracts together. Not everyone has those skills. So what's your experience there? Is, is it simple or is it complex? Um, what sounds like simple is pretty, pretty complex. Now, uh, make a couple of comments. I've listened to a number of recent interviews with uh, the CEO managing directors of, of uh, development companies. And I don't hear a lot about the customers. In other words, it's, well, term contracts is kind of a, we need to get those, but they've, they've, they focus a lot on optimization, getting their costs down, which obviously you'd need to do. But I think that in one of your, your other recent interviews, uh, a managing director said the, the optimization starts to get, the, the benefit gets smaller and smaller. And, you know, term contracts aren't something that come kind of later in the process. I'll go on record. There will not be a uranium mine built based on the spot market ever. It has never been and it won't be in the future. Too risky, too uh, specific on the, the, the customer base. So term contracts really, to me, trigger the development process. In other words, Without term contracts, uh, there are very few instances where you get financing. So you really can't then get your capital in place to then start developing the mine. Um, and, you know, and I hearken back to when we did the Paladin bankable contracts. Uh, those were a necessary part of the projects moving forward. Without those, we wouldn't have had the financing to do that. Um, now, again, I think one of the exceptions was the Berkeley Energia uh, agreement with the Middle Eastern Sovereign Wealth Fund, which said, yes, term contracts would be nice, but they didn't really require them. But everyone else is really going to look at. And, you know, Cameco, they say MacArthur doesn't restart without new term contracts. Converdine, we will not restart Metropolis. So it's not just some a nebulous concept. Okay, so how do you go about it? Um, first of all, new production centers, uh, assuming a relatively balanced market. Now, if it becomes a seller's market, that's going to change the dynamics. But the utilities will say, we'll do a small contract. We'll do two, 300,000 pounds as a starter. And then if you develop the project, you meet your delivery commitments, we'll consider a larger commitment because we can cover off with our flexibilities that we've gotten from our longtime reliable suppliers to cover if you don't meet your delivery commitments. So that's another thing. I think there's a sense million pound contracts are just out there. Very few, if any, and they're going to, again, the, the newer producers are going to have to see a suite of small volume agreements. Now, how do you go about that? Um, again, the utilities approach the market either on market, it's called, which is an official written request for proposal, which they send out to their list of suppliers. So in other words, even under that circumstance, you have to get on the supplier list. 
So you make sure you even see what they're distributing. But I went back 15 years and looked at term contracting and 70% of the volume was placed, quote, off market. Well, now what does that mean? That is direct negotiations and it be can be done by new producers. I did some of that with Paladin. Um, and certainly existing producers, you know, Cama goes in talking to their, as they've said, their best and largest customers to extend their current contracts. So, you know, I think that that's a, another issue that's not fully appreciated is there can be term contracting going on. Camica, 36 million pounds. Well, there's never been an announcement by a utility. Cameco only does it in the aggregate. So uh, a lot of the term contracting is, again, is off market. So you've got, if you're a new producer, you really can't sit and wait for the phone to ring because it won't ring. So you've got to get out. And it's as important as optimizing your project, as talking to funding sources, but it's actually engaging. When do you engage the utility industry, which ultimately will determine your future? And so it's complicated. And again, I want to get into all the aspects of each contract. It's more than price. People just think, well, I need $50, but there's delivery timing, delivery locations, um, you know, quantity flexibilities. Usually, you know, now even there's 10, 15% to the favor of the buyer, extension options. Um, the other thing too is has impacts on your working capital. If you look at Cameco's delivery schedules, it's skewed to the fourth quarter because they give their customers in general the right to call the delivery date. Now, if you're a small new producer, if you do that, You've got to assume a pound you produce in January may not be delivered till December. So you're going to have to sit on that pound for months. And so that needs to be part of your economic calculation, which I don't, some of them I don't think take that into account. But you can negotiate better delivery terms if you're a new guy. So that's what I'm saying is you, you need to ICA marketing plan strategy again is as important early on is how are you going to construct and operate your asset i think so, that, that's fascinating it says it says to me that companies which are not talking about this or not talking about their ability to do this either don't know or are nowhere you know down that process uh, it's also interesting to me that, you know, in a buyer's market, and a seller's market, the terms are going to be very different. The pricing and the structure of those terms, the securitization um, capability of those terms will be reflected in the cost of your money as you're talking to funders. Because if, it's, if you're a small company new to the market, whatever your experience, you're going to need a series of these small contracts to be able to add up to you know something that's interesting to a funder to allow you to complete your capex and get into production because one small deal isn't going to cut it um it no, it's, it's a fascinating fascinating space and, and i you know and, and thank you for 
talking about it, and I'm sure there's a lot more uh, to it than that. But it, yes. but it's a new thing that investors should be looking at and listening for from companies. I've not heard it. I've not heard that conversation from very many people. I can count on one hand how many people who have done it before well, and are capable of doing it. Yeah, well, Matt, what you hear is we've met with or we, we're in discussions with. And I think that they're just saying, yeah, I set up a meeting with six utilities during the WNA and we had a nice meeting. The utilities generally want to meet because they want to see what is out there and what's realistic. But that is, a, a f you're, you're far away from negotiating a term contract or a suite. And just back on that comment you just made, when we put the bankable contracts in place for phase one at Langer, I think there were four or five utilities that we got contracts with, and we actually had a couple of holes that needed to be filled in right at the last minute. But without that, the bank said, you know, you've got to meet these criteria on pricing volumes, delivery dates, and all of that. So I mean, it's a very was a very specific set of of criteria. Yeah, it's it's um, it's a fascinating area to get into because there, there's a few variables that you've talked about there which could affect the economics in a meaningful way because the, the the cost the cost of money is important yeah. down, you know down there the terms you negotiate with the utility in you know in a buyer's market can affect especially when some of these guys are you know needing a x dollars to um, start you know get break even um, worth considering and sort of worth analyzing look um, look Dustin uh, th thanks very much for running through um, your you know your your with your experience of the uh, term contracts market depreciate it um finish up finish off are you optimistic about uh, coming back to the nuclear fuel working group are you optimistic that it's a good thing for the u.s utility bars and u.s nuclear complex as a whole oh yeah i think that you know again it's crucial that something is being done that this has been looked at and again i think matt it's to, to some of us who've had a long experience in the u.s it's at a very very high level I mean, Larry Kudlow has been involved. Bolton, before he left, was involved. So, I mean, this isn't just some low-level, a couple of departments are thinking about whatever. I mean, it, it is at, at the highest levels in the White House. So, I think that there is a commitment to move forward to keep a viable U.S. fuel cycle. I mean, we haven't talked enrichment, but I think they realize we need to have domestic enrichment capabilities. And I think, uh, you know, export reactors. I think the government's realized that Russian, Chinese, to a lesser degree, Koreans are dominating that market. And like they said, there are no orders for U.S. derived reactors in the, in the foreign market. Zero. So everything that's going on in the Middle East, in, you know, India, you name it, there's nothing on the order books for the U.S. So there needs to be help somewhere if we're going to reassert some kind of leadership role globally in the nuclear area. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. I think we're obviously with, you know, 
generation four or just new and innovative technologies as a whole and supporting uh, that and the ability to export. I mean, we're kind of walking into the realms of, you know, corporate America here and, you know, um, which is maybe a subject for another day uh, as to how, you know, how yeah, they can absolutely. get back at the table. But, you know, today, today I want to talk about uranium miners. I think you've given us another big clue there as to what people should be looking for. Uh, listening for when they're trying to identify the right companies to um, get after. Um, was, so you're obviously very busy at the moment, I suspect, uh, but not running around the world. Lots of phone calls, and Zoom calls. Um, are you? What, what's, is, what's the mood in the market at the moment? Well, you know, I, uh, as you well know, I'm chief commercial officer for Yellow Cake. And so there's been a lot of interest in investing in a a fund that holds the, the physical asset. But I would say in the last couple of weeks, based upon group calls and individual one-on-ones, probably talked to 30 different groups. And, you know, it's interesting. They ranged everywhere from continental Europe, London, Hong Kong, Singapore. So, I mean, it's pretty broad, Australia. A lot of interest, a lot of knowledge, which I think is important. There are groups that have come in, they've left, they're coming back. But it's not, uh, you know, tell me the fundamentals of supply demand. It's more of I understand that, but what are the the, the, the nuances and, and what's the timing? I mean, I'm forever asked when is the, and now I can say, well, the price has gone up finally. So, yeah, a lot of it. That's a fascinating. Again, that that's that's fascinating. Is like the, the I've seen. I'm, we're seeing the generalists. We're getting inbound. You know, being asked uh, for our views on this. Not that they should be, but they they do. Um, and to see them interested for the first time in a long time um, is well. It, I, I'm, I'm you know I, I'm glad. Obviously, very nice. But what what do you think it's going to take? Uh, for them to actually step in, put some money in, and sort of see where this is going, because um, you know, I for well, me, they, they talk about spot price. I mean, it's the, it's the most important thing. They go, you know, when when's this thing gonna get to a point where these mining companies can get into operation? I don't know. But yeah, Matt, a lot of them have gone beyond what's the spot price doing today? Mm. What's the spot price going to be in a month? They realize this is a much more complicated. Uh, industry and you know what they're asking me on on the production side are questions like management in other words i'm going to begin to invest not just in an asset but have these do the you think these guys are going to get this done or not and so i think and that's you know something we've talked about before is human resources uh operational technical managerial marketing expertise in this business is becoming increasingly scarce but i think that that's why i guess i'm more optimistic is because like i said a number of i it's the odd call when somebody says hey i've got a clean sheet of paper tell me about nuclear and uranium it's like oh no you know yeah i've been in and out i've gotten i've done well i've gotten burned you know and now I've got my list of critical criteria. And it, so it goes beyond the spot price. And a lot of them more and more are understanding the term market involvement and what that means. But uh, yeah, so I think that 
it's what gives me optimism is is the uh, let's say increased sophistication in the space of the investors because for years as you know decades we didn't have it there really wasn't any investor group you know mines were built by big companies and so they were part of a big you know financing uh, arena the rios the you know camagos and all of that but now it's it's you know it's much more interesting because of the the financial guys and their analysis i listen to what they say you know in the old days it was they had no clue but now it's like no we've run the numbers we have our model and here's what we're concluding so it shows they're putting the time effort in which i think is needed so yeah i guess there's there's a bit of we we have had inbound calls from fund managers hedge fund managers and talk about specific assets and they're telling me why certain assets within a company unnamed well i'm not going to name yeah. it uh, will never work. They won't work at a hundred bucks. So yeah, there's some very detailed analysis out there. But these, unfortunately, the market isn't aware of that information because it's not capable of doing that type of analysis. So it's, it's. Uh, I guess all of us are learning all the time. So uh, I shall let you go, sir, because I think I thank you very much for today, okay. as, as ever. But let's not. Let's not leave it six months next time. That was that's ridiculous. I know things were quiet, but uh, yeah. I suspect they're going to be a lot uh, busier over the next few weeks and months. I think so, and, and I think you know where I am. I'm not going anywhere. So I, anyway, I, I recognize that. <laughs> say say hello to your wife. Um, I will. Right. Okay, uh, appreciate it. We'll speak to you that. soon, Dustin. Thanks again. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast? or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.